How did you find reading through the whole sermon? All right? I think one of the struggles as you read it, as a Christian, is the tension between the promised blessings, particularly at the start, and the present battles that we face day on, day out. There's this tension. Blessed are you when people persecute you. Blessed are you when people insult you. Blessed are you when people falsely speak all kinds of evil against you. It's a promise here. It's a blessing. And yet, in insult, in false accusation, in persecution, in the present battles, we find it hard to remember, enjoy, see by faith the promised blessing. Enter through the narrow gates that leads to life. This is the promised blessing. Eternal life. And yet there's a tension, isn't there, with the present battles. Whether it's the battle for humility and anger, the fighting temptation and lust, the resolving to turn the other cheek, loving the enemy who's brought you agony, choosing generosity over self-indulgence, persevering in private prayer, or forsaking worldly treasure, there are present battles that sometimes take our eyes off the promised blessing. And we take the Beatitudes and we say, you know, I mourn. I know the poorness in spirit, but today I'm struggling to remember, to enjoy, to perceive the blessing. You've been there? You feel that? Last week, Jesus summoned to his surgery the hypocrites, those people who by their lips profess lordship, to the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet their lives betray something completely different. Lord, Lord, and yet Jesus titles them evil. But what about those of us who are not deceived, but dedicated, not just professing, but practicing, not false, but following? Maybe following, but faint. Maybe, you know, professing, but weary. What does Jesus have to say to you? Well, he tells a story. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the winds, when the rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it's had its foundation on the rock. If you are a professing and practicing Christian this morning, let me encourage you. The Lordship of Jesus Christ is stronger than the storm. Here he tells you that although you are walking this narrow way and there are present battles, it is the wise way. It does lead to life. See, the builder here, little man, builds his house. But his wisdom is not seen so much in the strength of his own design, is it? It's seen in the strength of his foundation. Where does the storyteller applaud? Where does he lay the emphasis? We'll have a look at the end of verse 25. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. 
the emphasis falls not so much on the builder or even on his building, but the rock upon which he built. You see, the storm did come. And it came with a vengeance. The rain came down. The floods came up. The rain came. You know what's happening? And the floods came up. The rain came down. The floods came out. Yet, it did not fall. Why? It had its foundation on the rock. See, the wise man or woman who does not just profess to know and love Jesus, but practices, is truly wise. Because the lordship of Jesus is stronger than the storm. That is to say, when the lordship of Jesus is more than just a profession of the lips, but it works its way through the head and the heart and the hands. So the head comprehends, yes, he is both Emmanuel, God with us, but also Jesus, Savior from sin. But more than the head, the heart, the heart knows deep down, It is not surpassingly righteous. The heart deep down knows that it must repent. The heart deep down knows that he needs to be made new. He's not bad. He must be good. He knows deep down in his heart that every day he must pray, forgive us our sins. The head, the heart, but then also he hears and he puts them into practice, the hands. There must also be that surpassing righteousness, this radical righteousness, a new way of life. There must be this whole of life integrity that lives life before the Heavenly Father who sees what he's done in secrets. When allegiance to Jesus is more than just a profession of the lips, but is worked through the head and the heart and the hands, it is truly wise. Why? Because the lordship of Jesus is stronger than the storm. What's the storm here? What is Jesus referring to with the floods rising and the rain coming down and the wind beating? Well, look in the context of Matthew. Verse 22 Just before this passage, many will say to me on that day. The storm Jesus is referring to is the storm of God's wrath, the final judgment day that awaits all humanity. You can see that in the wider context of Matthew. When you get to chapters 24 and 25, the language of wise and foolish returns. And the parables told in those chapters were all about the final judgment day. Uh, That is true, too, of the rest of the Bible. Come with me to Isaiah chapter 28. And back on page 711 in the Pew Bibles, Isaiah chapter 28. The Old Testament, too, speaks of the final day of God's judgment as a storm. Isaiah 8 from verse uh, 28 from verse 17. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie. And water will overflow your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the grave will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you'll be beaten down by it. As often as it comes, it will carry you away morning after morning, by day and by night. It will sweep through. The understanding of this message will bring sheer terror. 
It continues in other books in the Old Testament. Let me read you some verses from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 23, verse 19 to 20. See the storm of the Lord will burst out in wrath, a whirlwind swirling down on the heads of the wicked. Jeremiah 25, verse 32. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Look, disaster is spreading from nation to nation. A mighty storm is rising from the ends of the earth. Jeremiah 30, verse 23. See, the storm of the Lord will burst out in wrath, a driving wind swirling down on the heads of the wicked. The storm, the rain, the wind is God's once for all wrath, anger, judgment, both on outright rebellion, but also on a superficial worship of him. The storm is coming. It's interesting in Isaiah 28, if you're still there, the verse before he begins to describe the storm of God's wrath, he says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. Where's the only refuge in the storm of God's wrath? The rock that he provides. So when you read in this little parable of Jesus, he builds his house on the rock. It is the only place of refuge. Jesus comes as the divine son of God saying, I am that rock. My life of exceeding righteousness. My death for your unrighteousness. My gift of perfect righteousness. The rock, the foundation, the refuge from this storm. Have you taken refuge there? It is in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ that we find refuge from the storm of God's wrath. It is in the cross of Jesus that I find protection from the judgment I deserve. So that on that day, I, as it were, hide myself in the house of Jesus. And the wave of God's wrath hits him. He is destroyed. And yet hidden within him, I am completely secure. Unshaken. Unmoved. Protected. The lordship of Jesus is stronger than the storm. Christian brother or sister, when you're struggling to see the, or relieve the tension between the promised blessings that Jesus brings, but the present battles of today, remember this. The lordship of Jesus is stronger than the storm that is coming. It's true of that storm. It is true of any of life's storms. Be encouraged. Stand firm. The lordship of Jesus is stronger than cancer. The lordship of Jesus is stronger than redundancy. 
The lordship of Jesus is stronger than your bereavement. It is stronger than your trial. It is stronger than your temptation. It is stronger than your persecution. It is stronger than your addiction. It is stronger than Satan. The lordship of Jesus is stronger than the storm. We can say in that tension, I may mourn, but the narrow road of following Jesus is wise because I know founded on Jesus, I will be comforted. We can say, I may be poor in spirit, but I know that the narrow way of following Jesus is wise because founded on Jesus, I will inherit the kingdom of heaven. We can say in persecution that although I'm persecuted for being a Christian, the narrow way of following Jesus is wise. Because founded on Jesus, I will inherit the earth. We can say in life's strife, that although the narrow way of following Jesus is hard, it is wise. Because founded on Jesus, we are children of our heavenly He's stronger than the storm. Let me give you some Psalms to take away. You can note them now, love them later. Psalm 16. I've set my Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Psalm 62, where we started the service. My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. I shall never be shaken. Be encouraged. At the end of this sermon, you may be cowering, convicted, challenged. And know this Christian brother or sister who's found refuge in Christ. He comes to your Lord, the Lord, and says, keep going. Keep walking the narrow way. Keep hearing. Always be practicing. Because you know that my Lordship, the Lordship of Jesus, is stronger than this storm. We will not be shaken but Jesus is a preacher and as a preacher he knows the power of comparison and so he gives us not just one man but he gives us two he gives us not just a wise man but he gives us a fool we've seen repeatedly in this sermon on the mount that Jesus is Making a division, but not a division between the person in the Rose Street pub and the person in the Rose Street pew. He's making a division between the person sitting next to you in the pew and you. He's dividing between hearers. The wise man hears and puts into practice. The foolish man merely hears. Verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine does not put them into practice, is like a foolish man. He builds his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Both men heard the sermon. 
Both men took notes. Both men re-listened to the podcast. Both men went to the same fellowship group. And yet one is wise, one is foolish. Luke records the sermon too, and he asks a helpfully blunt question. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? In Matthew's context, we could ask the question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not practice what you hear? Jesus has thrown out the H-bomb a couple of times in his sermon. You hypocrites. And once again, he summons hypocrites to his judgment throne. Uh, Let's go back through the sermon. Let's think of some of these applications. And Jesus says, let's match up your words and your actions. Let's examine today your fruits. Let's compare what you've heard with what you have practiced. What about when it comes to money? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet you idolize money? Why do you claim to be a Christian when your life is driven more by a love for cash or a love for career than a love for Christ? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet you are constantly storing up for yourself treasures on this earth and ignoring the treasure of heaven? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, when you've forgotten how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, when your life is more comparable to the monopoly man than the son of man who has nowhere to lay his head? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not practice what you hear? What about your self-control? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet your life is defined by gluttony? Why do you call him Lord, Lord, when your God is your stomach and cake is your comfort? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet you funnel pint after pint on a Friday night? Why do you call him Lord, Lord, when, again, you are more comparable to Homer Simpson than the Lord Jesus Christ? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet you do not practice what you hear? What about purity? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet your life is lived for selfish pleasure. Why do you call him Lord, Lord, and yet we play pick and mix with his commands for our own selfish lusts? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet you're sleeping with your boyfriend? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet you're indulging yourself in porn? How can you call him Lord, Lord, when your sex drive takes precedent over his commands? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet you're not practicing what you're hearing? What about anxiety? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet your life is governed by a fear of man? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet you are more concerned about your own reputation and acceptance from the crowd than you are for his glory? Why do you call him Lord, Lord, and yet you fear him who can only harm the body? You do not fear him who can cast body and soul into hell. Why do you call him Lord, Lord, and yet you don't practice? what you hear what about truthfulness why do you call me Lord Lord and yet your life is built upon lies why do you call him Lord Lord and yet your relationships hang on the half truth of a carefully imagined illusion why do you call him Lord Lord and yet you live in the fear that the truth will reveal your history is a descending trajectory from little white lies into flagrant 
throat. Why do you call him Lord, Lord, and you're not practicing what you hear? Why do you call him Lord, Lord, and you forget that he is the Father in heaven who sees what is done in secret? Why do you call him Lord, Lord, and think that your office or your bedroom or the nightclub is a safe deposit box for your secrets? Why do you call him Lord, Lord, and yet your life is defined by hypocrisy? Jesus says this is an age-old problem. It's been common in humanity since almost forever. Listen to these words from Ezekiel. Powerful words. As for you, son of man, the prophet says, your people who talk together about by the walls and at the doors of the houses, they say to one another, come, hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. And they come as people come. They sit before you as my people and they hear what you say. But do not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act, their hearts are set on gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument, for they hear what you say, but they will not do it. Uh, Most of you will remember the story of the three pigs. Remember that story? Three little pigs, and each of them builds a house. One with straw, one with wood, one with bricks, I think is right. And out comes this ferocious wolf with extraordinary puff power. Now there is important distinction. You can kind of see a a relationship between Jesus' parable and the three pigs. But they are very different. The story of the three pigs is a pig-promoting parable. It's all about what they build and how they build. We've already seen this is a Jesus-promoting parable. It is his foundation. What's interesting, though, to me about the three pigs is the progression of the story in history. It started off ferocious. The three pigs, well, the first two build unwisely. What is their outcome? Do you remember? They are butchered by the wolf and eaten. Then what happens to the wolf? He can't blow down the house that's made of bricks, so he climbs down the chimney. What happens? He lands in a carefully positioned cauldron of boiling water, is boiled alive and eaten by pig number three. It's a children's story. Can you believe that? Now, when Disney got a hold of the story, they toned it down. So the first two pigs are not butchered and eaten alive. Uh, They just run away scared. The wolf, when he comes down the chimney, is not boiled alive. He runs away with his tail burnt. The whole story is blunted for the sake of a children's story. I wonder if the same thing has happened for those of us who have grown up in church to this parable. Remember the children's songs? Do you want to sing one? So the rain came down and the flood. Don't leave me on my own, please. And the floods came up. The rain. They're not doing the actions. And the floods came up. The rain came down and the floods came up. And the house on the sand fell flat. We've made a happy, clappy song out of something that should be a funeral lament. There's another one. 
Do you remember the one? Don't build your house on the sandy land. Don't build it too near the shore. Well, it might be kind of nice, but you'll have to build it twice, or you'll have to build your house once more. That is tragic. In this parable, there is not the option of rebuilding your house. Is there? Biblically, when a house or a building falls, it completely destroys all that find refuge in it. You can go to Judges 16, Samson in the Philistine temple. Its collapse brought total death. You can go to the Tower of Siloam in Luke 13. Its collapse brought total destruction. It is not, well, you have to build your house once more. It is destruction. It is death. The next day, the guy's family members come to the ruins of his house and are digging for a corpse. Hypocrisy kills. It is a soul-ruining plague. Don't let a Sunday school chorus with a happy, clappy tune rob the punch of this parable. Hypocrisy kills. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not practice what you hear? See, the second point in our parable is that hypocrisy is destined for destruction. The foundation of sand cannot stand in the storm. The foundation of hypocrisy will not endure the final judgment day of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a smoker, smoking packets, as you'll know, are covered in pictures of the effect that it has on lungs. Horrible pictures uh, as a deterrent. Smoking kills. Do you know what would serve us well? Is if on the front page of our Bibles, we had a picture of the ruins of this man's house. If we had a picture of his gravesite, the hypocrite. Hypocrisy kills. So that every time we come to his word, we are not just merely hearers, but we put into practice what we hear. The storm is coming. It is not like the flight attendant on your plane that says in the unlikely event of an emergency, it is not unlikely, but it is certain. The storm is coming. What are you building your life on? The strength of the lordship of Jesus or the hypocrisy of your own art or of your own lies? Isaiah 28 again, we read, we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. Is your refuge a lie or is it the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is your refuge falsehood Or is it the lordship and the cross of Jesus Christ? He's divided between you and the person next to you. Both heard the sermon. He says, are you going to merely hear or are you going to put it into practice? Hypocrisy kills. Jesus saves. True allegiance is unshakable. Hypocritical allegiance will end in destruction. Let's pray.